uh, let's pray together. Father, once again, we, uh, we thank you for this time together tonight, and uh, we admit uh, we come with, yeah, with heavy hearts as we look to the cross and all that it means. We pray as we um, now have heard your, read al- your word read aloud and as we uh, look to John 19 together that you would teach us and uh, speak to us tonight, guide us, open our eyes to see um, these truths and apply them to our lives. And uh, we, just, we give you this time. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome. And it's, it's good to be together on this uh, really good Friday, and yet this somber, um, reflective Friday as we think about the, the weight of tonight. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here if I haven't had a chance to meet you. And just we're so glad that you're with us. We have uh, just a few minutes together now where we're going to look in John 19 and, and talk about the cross and, and what it means, the death of Christ. And, and as we're preparing to do that, again, if you have a Bible, you can join us in John 19. Um, we're going to skip ahead to uh, verse 28 really is where we're going to hone in as we just heard the events of uh, Good Friday kind of read, read aloud. Um, while you're turning there, you know, I found that for me, unfinished business in my life creates a lot of anxiety. You know, if there's like things that need to be done, the queue is filling up, uh, the to-do list is long. Uh, right now we got a, a number of different kind of projects going on at the house, inside and outside. If you know yet, if you have little kids or have had little kids, you know like that, you know, the list of house projects stays long, and it's hard to, hard to chip away at it. Um, maybe you know the feeling, um, multiple tasks to do, none of them finished. And on the contrary, uh, when you complete a task, well, you know if you have a to-do list, and when you get to check that box and complete the task, it feels pretty good, right? right? That's, that's why, you know, mowing the lawn or, or cleaning the bathroom can be so satisfying, because you can look back afterwards and say, all right, like, look, look at that. You know, job well done. It, it feels good. And you can apply this to so many other things in life, right? I bought, bought the groceries, paid the bill, got the kids out the door, wrote the report, sent the email, gave the presentation, folded the laundry. Ah, finished project. Nice, complete, feels good. The same is true relationally, right? If we know something relationally is off with someone, it's unsettling until it's, you know, reconciled and dealt with. And once it is, it's great. That brings great relief to us. And there, there's a spiritual parallel here. Uh, the reason I mentioned this, um, didn't want to just talk to you about laundry tonight. You know, there's a, there's a reason. Um, and the, the parallel is this. Sometimes I often talk to people today who, who really uh, appear to be spiritually quite weary or, or spiritually quite um, anxious. As in they have this nagging suspicion that even, even if they are a Christian, you know, that God isn't, isn't all that sure about loving them. You know, he's still making up his mind about you, and so you're a little unsettled about the love of God. And I see this as a pastor a lot, you know, you know I'll be talking with people, and people kind of like subtly try to, um, you know, like convince me that they're doing a lot of spiritual things, and you know, like, you know, I, I, hey, I, um, you don't have to prove something to me. But anyways, you see the same uh, th- thread worked out in the world, right, in, in various religions outside of the church. There's this, this effort, this striving to prove that you're acceptable, that you're a good person, that you um, <clears throat> do enough good in the world to validate yourself. Um, often 
Even people who seem maybe really like proud, or wow, they're an arrogant person, you might say. Uh, underneath that shell of pride is often this deep insecurity. This, this wondering about, am I accepted? Uh, we want to be accepted by God and on good terms with Him, but we think, you know, we have some unfinished business there where uh, the box isn't quite checked. We're not quite sure it's, it's complete. Um, not sure we can ever really rest assured that we've done enough. And it's my hope that tonight, in our short time together, you would simply see how radically and refreshingly good the gospel is. How radically and refreshingly good the message of, of Good Friday is and what Jesus did for us. See, we heard it read aloud uh, from John 19, uh, the events leading to the cross, right? After working miracles and powerful teaching and growing conflict with the religious leaders, Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, he's mocked, he's beaten, and he's uh, crucified. And you'll notice if you read through the Gospels, it doesn't usually give us much detail about what a crucifixion would entail. It doesn't go into the details because the original audience would know what that meant. They'd be quite familiar with what crucifixion would mean. Historians will note that right, a criminal's arms are outstretched upon the wooden beam and they're nailed to the cross. They'd have to then be lifted up and, and they would have to support their body weight uh, on these arms with nails through the wrists. But when the victim's uh, longing for oxygen would be uh, just too much to bear because they're sinking down and they can't breathe properly. They have to push themselves up on the nail between or in their feet so that they could take a breath and that would you know, uh, prolong their life somewhat and fend off suffocation for a time. But it was, of course, extremely painful putting the whole weight of their body on their feet, pushing up, not to mention the criminal's back torn by floggings, flesh open, would scrape against the wood with each breath. And this really agonizing process would take place until uh, the victim no longer had strength to lift himself up for a breath. So Jesus has been crucified here. And once he's on the cross, I want to skip ahead to verse 28 to 30 and, and read just these final moments uh, Jesus has on the cross before his death. Verse 28 says this, and he's on the cross. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. In verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus says, I'm thirsty. He's given a drink of this wine vinegar from a sponge, a reference straight from, from Psalm 69, depicting uh, one suffering greatly, Jesus quoting, or really living out here parts of the Old Testament again. And then in verse 30, you see his, his final words there on the cross? It is finished. See, in the Gospel of Mark, if you go and look at Mark 15, verse 37, it describes the final moments of Jesus on the cross, and it says something like, he let out a loud cry and breathed his last, but it doesn't tell us what he said with that cry, and so it, it seems here that John is filling in that detail for us. As he lets out this loud cry before he dies, he says, it is finished. In the original Greek, it's just one word, actually. You maybe have heard it before, tetelestai. 
It's one of those rich words in another language, you know, those words like that where, where one word in a different language uh, has to be explained in, in various words in the English language. We have to use multiple words to describe it because it's, it's quite rich. Like the, uh, the Danish word, huga. Anybody know about huga? It's popular nowadays. It's spelled H-Y-G-G-E. It's a Danish word, and it, it's a word that refers to like a cozy or comfortable surrounding that invokes an inner sense of contentment or peace or well-being. That's Huga. Or if someone's read the books about the Huga, you can tell me if I'm saying it wrong. But you get, you get the idea. One word with a lot of meaning wrapped up in it. Or the German word, you might know this one, schadenfreude. That's the word for the feeling of pleasure or satisfaction that you get when you see someone else's misfortune. Right? So if someone trips and falls and you're like... <laughs> That's that feeling is schadenfreude, and that's, a, again, a feeling I've, I've never personally experienced because I, you know, I, I don't know what that's like, but I've heard that people experience things like this. Just kidding. You get the idea. One word that, that captures just a, a full weight of meaning and here in John 19, verse 30. It's tetelestai, Christ on the cross. It is finished. Or uh, mission accomplished, essentially, is what he's saying. And in, in religious context, this word would, would carry uh, the idea of fulfilling one's obligations. I've, I've completed the task assigned to me. Right? And as we've been studying the Gospel of John together as a church family, remember earlier in the book, in a number of ways, uh, in chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus speaks of the work that he was sent to accomplish. He came with a, a mission. Or earlier in John, they'll talk about how his hour has not yet come. There's this hour coming when he'll be glorified and the Father will be glorified. There's a purpose for his coming, and he keeps pointing forward to it. And now on the cross, he announces, mission accomplished. It's finished. And so I point this out because you can read through the Gospels and see all these uh, human details of the story that led to the crucifixion. As we just heard uh, Ben read out loud for us, he's betrayed and Jesus is arrested and the leaders, you know, want to get rid of him because they're threatened by him and then the people ultimately reject him, right? There's all these details happening on like the horizontal level and yet throughout the Gospel of John we see this, this amazing truth of the sovereign hand of God at work, right? God's plan of salvation unfolding in these events with intention and with purpose. Peter in Acts chapter 2 puts it this way, says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Do you see the, the horizontal and the vertical there? This is happening according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and yet you are guilty in putting him to death, Peter says. So we see God using and, and redirecting the, the sinful, evil plans of men and using it for good to bring about salvation. Right? Jesus says earlier in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. Not a helpless victim here, right? But what? I lay it down. There's a purpose here. Shown again in verse 19, 30, Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit. It's not taken from him. 
And so this cry of it is finished on the cross reminds us of the intention and the purpose of the cross. That on the cross we see both tragedy and triumph. Tragedy in that we see the, the darkness of the human heart leading to the crucifixion, the killing of the Son of God. And, and yet we see salvation and victory through the cross, right? God came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He saves us from our sin. And this all raises the question of, of why the cross was necessary. Why was this the plan of God? Why was this the mission that had to be accomplished? The Bible makes it clear. It talks about the reality of sin, right? Romans 3.23, a verse many of us is, have memorized, puts it quite simply. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? The Bible makes very clear the reality of sin in our lives, our, our rebellion against God, how we wanted to be uh, in charge. We wanted to do things our own way, and so we broke the commands and the laws of God. We wanted to be on the throne, and so we're, we're guilty, really, of cosmic treason before God. We want to act as God and do things our way. And what that ends up doing is not only uh, dishonoring God and breaking our relationship with Him, but then it just, we just wreak havoc in God's world as our selfishness is on display. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5 explained, right, and in our prayer time earlier, we needed to be reconciled to God. Because the relationship was broken, because of the, the consequences of sin, right, we were under the, the judgment of God. And if that sounds harsh to you, that, that sin would have consequences, or that God would judge, or His wrath would fall on evil and evildoers, I think if we look a little bit deeper, we realize that really that is good news in a sense, that we really want a God of justice. Think about the emotions that stir within you when you see great evil in the world. Think about what stirs within you when you think about abandoned children and vulnerable people being abused or, or racism or, or, or human trafficking or, or murder or genocide, war or people taken advantage of, right? You could just go down the list. Think about what stirs in your heart when you see these realities, it's a longing for, for justice, for someone to address this, for someone to make things right, for, for evildoers to be held accountable, for the, the people to be caught who have done these things and, and, and meet justice. We long for that. And so we see that in the Scriptures, God is the judge of all the earth. Sin will not get swept under the rug. Evil and evildoers will be held accountable before the Lord. The problem, though, is we realize that there's something deeply wrong in our hearts as well, right? And so it's not just there's, you know, guilty people out there. We realize our own sin, our own pride, our own selfishness, the people that we've harmed, the way that we've turned from God. And then none of us can stand before the judgment seat of God, not one. And so here's the situation. How can God be a God of justice and deal rightly with evil and also a God who is in relationship with these sinful people that he so deeply loves? 
And Romans 3 tells us the answer. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it goes on, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So the answer, right, Romans 3 gives us is that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus would bear the consequences of our sin. Judgment would fall on Jesus, not as an unwilling victim, but as a willing sacrifice so that we could be forgiven. So Jesus, we see, is then our substitute, standing in our place, God himself bearing the cost of sin. Author John Stott puts it this way, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, so God put himself where we deserve to be. You see how this is good news? It's good news, because we can take sin seriously, and we don't have to pretend that, that we're not sinful we don't prepare like, you know, no, you're a good person, and I'm a good person, everybody's a good person, and it doesn't make any sense explaining why the world's so dark, but everybody's a good person, and there's no, sin isn't a real thing. We don't have to play that game. We can just be honest before the Lord. Say, there's sin in my life. We're sinners who need to be forgiven. We know something's broken. So we can confess, but at the same time, then we can rest in the, the finished work of Christ. We're on the cross, he says, it is finished. Tetelestai paid for. There was a debt for sin and it was paid by Christ. Someone had to bear the weight, the consequences of sin, and, and someone has. Death was required for sin and there was a death. Someone had to drink the Old Testament, uh, what the Old Testament referred to as the cup of God's wrath, and Jesus drank it. He's, he's done it. So that all who trust in him would have his righteousness then given to them. All right, so all that's left for us to do is what? Repent and believe. To receive this gift of salvation by faith. We're saved, forgiven of our sin, reconciled to God. And our acceptance, our justification before God is secured through the finished work of Christ. And so it's my hope tonight just that you would see that, that, our, that our salvation our justification before God is not like one of those unfinished house projects that, that brings us great stress because it's left hanging over us. Or one of those, you know, uh, tense relationships that's never quite resolved and it's just left hanging over our heads and we're never quite sure are we on good terms or not. Right? It is finished means we can rest in the finished work of Christ. We can have peace with God. We don't have to fear condemnation if we are in Christ. It is finished means we can truly rest and stop like running around like the, the trial is still going. 
Isn't that what we do sometimes? And in our fear, we're like, the trial's still going, so i got to go and figure out as much evidence as I can to prove that I'm valuable to show to the judge that, look, I'm good. And we're just exhausted and weary trying to find the evidence and, and pointing to how bad other people are, and we look a little bit better than them, so maybe that'll help. And we just get, God, we're just so busy doing that. Rather than in say, saying, look at what Christ has done. It is finished. The, the, the case is over. Right? The, the verdict has come in. The trial's done. If we put our faith in Christ, it is finished, justified, welcomed home as sons and daughters of God. Case closed. Now, I've shared this before, but it's, it's worth repeating. Scholars will point out that um, the Buddha, at the end of his life, in his final sentiments to his followers, was something along the lines of, you know, strive without ceasing. You got to work hard to experience your liberation or your salvation to get to it. But Jesus' last words were, it is finished. And one of those sounds a lot better to me. Right? Strive without ceasing or it is finished. One's good advice, one's good news. And so, friends, that's why we're here, simply to, to worship, to, to remember uh, who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. And, um, and I know we're going we're gonna to celebrate like crazy on Sunday. Uh, tonight, there's a bit more of a somber feel because of the weight of the cross and sin. And so uh, we come, though, and we're going to take a communion together. It's a chance for us to just to respond, to receive uh, these elements. The, the bread representing the, the broken body of Christ given for us and the cup representing the shed blood of Christ for us. Right, that Thursday evening before his death on Good Friday, he was with his disciples and he, he took these elements and he told us to do this in remembrance of him. So let me pray for us and then we'll take the elements. Lord Jesus, we come before you with uh, humble hearts, with um, just a desire to worship you and say thank you, with gratitude in our hearts for these this declaration, it is finished, mission accomplished. Lord, you paid the price for us, and we uh, all that's left to do for us is repent and believe, to turn to you, put our faith in you. And so, Lord, we take these elements as a reminder of the great cost of our salvation. Thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.